All right, everyone, welcome to this episode of Prevailing Matters. I'm really excited today to introduce you to my guest, Kit Cummings. If you don't already know him, uh, you are just going to be amazed by his story, by his testimony. Um, he is the picture of a man who's turned his pain into purpose. He's making such a big impact in the world of crime, violence, interrupting the uh, cycle, generational cycle of violence and gangs in our youth right now in a uh, community in, in north of metropolitan Atlanta in Cobb County. But uh, he's been a friend of mine because of his advocacy in the recovery community and in my community. And I'm just really excited to um, have him share his story with you today and uh, just, I hope you find some um, some encouragement, and motivation to roll your sleeves up and get involved just like he has. So welcome, Kit. It's so good to see you again. Tell the listeners a little bit about your story and how you've come to write your second book. Okay. Um, I grew up in, first of all, thank you. For oh, thank me. you. Yeah. Thank you for the work you've done. I mean, we crossed paths when you were, you know, really advocating for, for, those that, that are like myself, trying to get in recovery or already there or really jammed up at the moment. And these second chance programs, man, that's my heart. And so I so admired, and we were talking beforehand, just the way that you handled that, that program. It gives me hope. And so, uh, but this is very, very close to my heart because I've lived it. And so the things I write about in 2010, I wrote my first book, which was um, Unshackled diary of a prodigal son and i told i told the story of the uh, drunken fallen preacher that found his way home through a bunch of convicts and gangsters and beautiful guys behind the wire and, and that uh, was you that was your story yeah so that yeah. was kind of my coming out you know it's yeah. like hey this is me talking about uh you know my struggle with addiction and uh and how i found my purpose in that pain. I mean, I love that you said that. I mean, that's <laughs> the funny thing is I'm recording a, uh, a sermon for a, a church in uh, South Africa, actually Zimbabwe today, and it's called uh, Finding Purpose in Your Pain. <laughs> and then you wow. bring up beautiful. Um, but anyway, I grew up in, in Cobb County, a Marietta native, and I've been in and around Atlanta my whole life. And uh, so, you know, I feel like this is my town. And, uh, but I know a lot of people, you know, it's been, uh, my career has been fairly public, but I was the least likely guy to become a preacher. And I grew up kind of on the South uh, part of Cobb County. And then we moved to Walton High School in East Cobb when that, when it was the thing. And so, uh, you know, I ran the mean streets of East Cobb. <laughs> I kind of joke and the, the brothers behind the wire laugh at me. Um, but anyway, I grew up in uh, alcoholism and addiction. It runs through my family line. And so, especially the men, you know, my dad, his dad, his dad, and it's generational and it's genetic, you know, and it's just this game. And, uh, and it affected me young. I got on that course, you know, as a young teen, 12, 13. I mean, the first time that I tasted it, I was like, oh my, I want to do this again. Because it kind of took me out of right here, right now. You know, I didn't feel comfortable on my own skin. I mean, that is kind of the nature of this disease that, that affects whole families not just the one. Yes. And so anyway, but I, I made it on through and because I was a, an athlete and I got along with people and I was a decent student, but behind the scenes, man, my life was reckless. 
And there were, you know, several arrests for just being a knucklehead when I was young, but then it was got more serious, you know, getting in fights and crashing cars and all of this when everybody thought, oh man, he's such a good guy. <laughs> and I, so I had this double thing going. Um, but the addiction just kept getting worse and worse. I lost my dad to it uh, when I was 23. And so this thing's very real. And, uh, but anyway, at 25, I had this experience and I met a guy and he studied the Bible with me. And I was like, whoa, because I'd never really studied it. I wasn't a church going kid, great family. But, yeah. um, and so I was just, I did that like I do everything else. I've only got one speed and it's like all out. So I'm either trying to save the world or tear it up. <laughs> it's like, that's all I got. Yeah. And so, golly, just, I mean, right into this, this Christian, yeah, I just fell in love with God. And, and so I said, man, I got to be a preacher, you know, and I, I didn't even know I had the gift. When I got up in front of the church, something turned on and came alive. And I'm like, man, I found my purpose. And I'd love to say, and so that brings me to today, you know, it's been a wonderful <laughs> ride, but uh, <laughs> the rest of, that's the beginning of the story. So I, I battled this addiction thing throughout my ministry career. And, you know, I had uh, great people around me, elders and, and fellow preachers and staff. And so I was kind of protected and, and, you know, but still it was, I was playing a dangerous game throughout off and on. And by the time I've been doing it for 15 years and leading large churches, you know, I just got burnt out. And the more that I got burnt out, the more it started coming back. And I just lost my heart, man. I just ran out of gas and I walked away from a couple thousand people at the age of 40. And I had, <laughs> I had to fall and I went back into this world where I wasn't protected yes. and I became that guy you know, back in the old day. And I just, you know, I tore up some stuff and had to go through a rough little stretch, lost some things. So in my 40th year, um, banner year, it was divorce and rehab and bankruptcy. It's just mm -hmm. like, boom. And this is the preacher, you know, I was a popular, you know, I don't know, right. effective preacher. And so my fall from grace was public, <laughs> you know, it was very like, public. You're not paranoid if everybody is really talking about you. Yes, that's <laughs> I right. I kind of say that joking, yeah. but in my circle, it was real. And so I got out there, and in 2005, I had my last drink. And uh, so it's been 15 years, and it's, so it's been a gradual, you know, finding my way home. But I remarried in 06. But in 08, I'm trying to find my voice because I feel like now I, I, I'm disqualified. I don't know if I can preach anymore. You know, the Bible says some things about, you know, divorce and remarriage and just, right. some of the, you know, colorful things that went on in my life. But I but I did believe that, man, maybe I could preach again. And so I prayed. And one night under the stars, I prayed a prayer. It was going to change my life. I said, if you ever let me preach again, you know, because I didn't think that was a possibility. It's not like any churches were, you know, searching for a drunken, fallen preacher yeah. know, to lead them. And so or I said, they don't think they need a drunken, fallen preacher. <laughs> <laughs> over. That's right. And so I said, if you ever let me preach again, I'll go to the people that don't, nobody wants to go to the harassed and helpless. I said, the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the stranger, you know, the, yes. the naked and the prisoner, the least of these, the least of these. Yep. And, and he took that promise serious and he worked out a way. And so one of the kids that I, that, you know, kind of one of my congregants, uh, the beautiful little boy, he was young, 12, 13 years old, and he'd come up and wait in line to come and, and tell me, you know, what he learned from my sermon, just a great kid, so much promise. And I lost him. And 10 years later, his mom reached out to me and he had gotten caught up in MS-13. 
and had become somebody in that world. And now he's looking at a gang related murder charge with a potential death penalty. And this is my little brother, right? And so that is how he got me into the prisons. He, he utilized this, this beautiful little kid that I cared about. Otherwise, you know, if I get called up, hey, you gonna, can you come work with the MS-13 gang leader? I'd have been like, man, that ain't, what, what do you mean? But he introduced me to this life and it changed me. So then I was invited into Hay State Prison toughest prison in the state and one of the toughest in the country at this time with bodies, five bodies in six weeks. Um, somebody invited me to go in there and I walked in and it changed my life and I found my, my purpose. And then all that pain made sense because all the stuff that I went through now, I could come in there and and I'll kind of close this thought, you know, with, with your question, with this thought, but I needed a safe place where I could preach because I was so wounded and so much shame and everything from my fall. And maximum obscurity prisons with hardcore guys, a lot of them gangsters, became my safe place, which is kind of ironic because I could share anything with them. And they laughed at my pain and they cheered at my struggles. You know, they felt like I was one of them. And, and it's a beautiful thing. And that, that one little, you know, that spark turned into going in over 100 prisons, jails, detention centers and rehabs in the last decade and working with over 10,000 inmates across the country and on four continents just because a, a mom hit me up on Facebook. Right, and uh, the program that you're talking about where you were in the um, recovery uh, facilities and the prisons and the jails, that's your Power of Peace project, right? right? So just describe sort of the formula that you've used. You've shared your story, but sometimes people share their story and it's not enough. So share with us sort a little bit of your formula for the Power of Peace. Yeah, thank you for asking that. So imagine uh, we have a new prison, okay, that, that wants the power of peace. And it's all about um, escalating violence that they're trying to, you know, start bringing down. Because when violence goes up, programs are taken away, recreation, church, visitation, everything. Everything good gets taken away when there's violence. So you got a lot of brothers in there that didn't perpetrate it. And now all of a sudden everybody's on lockdown. And they can't. And that act. actually escalates the violent thinking. Totally. So, right. Now, now they're bored and have too much energy and nothing to do. And so they fight, you know, or they right. just knuckleheads. And so um, I'll go to working with the warden or the deputy warden of security, whoever is my, my person. And I want 100 guys that are influencers. Okay. And, and the warden always looks at me and says, no, you don't want them. And I was like, we've got to get them. They're the ones that are running things. They're the 80% that won't come to anything that you've got going programs, education, you know, GEDs, substance, whatever. And so um, that's the first step. And so when I come into the, you know, the gym or wherever we're at, it's a hundred guys and they're all in their different, you know, groups. And, and you got all the ones that you're thinking of, you know, Crips and Bloods and GDs and Latin Kings and Aryan Brotherhood and the, the Muslim Brothers. And, you know, it's and that first day is, is an interesting vibe because they don't know why they've been there. The, the warden says, you've been chosen. Just come on the first day. If you don't like it, don't participate. And I get a few hours with them. Mm -hmm. And so the process is that for 40 days, they're going to commit to seven principles. And every day they're going to get uh, quotes from iconic peacemakers like Gandhi and King and Mandela. And then I added Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh and Malcolm. And I started, you know, it's very inclusive for faiths and cultures and for everybody. And, and so they get two quotes 
you know, for Dr. King the first week, and then they get an action challenge. Okay. And, and we're trying to get all the guys just to commit to one day at a time. They get a wristband that either says I am the power of peace or hope is the new dope. And that reminds them. And they also start kind of standing out because people are like, Hey, what's that about? And so the steps they commit to are all about bringing rivals together. So our goal is to get these men over 40 days to learn that if they work together, they can bring about more peace, which is going to get them more privileges. So it's an incentive based. I got to give them something. And so I work with them throughout the, the, you know, eight week program. And it's like, you guys got to give me something. I mean, you guys got to start calling different shots. Give me something to work with the administration about and we can start trying to get this thing going. And so it's valuable to the warden and his or her staff, but also to the brothers because they want better. You know, they, they don't want to live in you know, that kind of situation if they don't have to. And so they have small groups. We meet every week and we discuss, you know, this one of my books is called um, 40 Days to Freedom. And so it's built on these seven steps. And tell me if this isn't the medicine for what we need in today's world and the current climate in the free world. Right. Seek first to understand your opponent. And I teach them that if you study your opponent, even if y'all don't end up, you know, being cool at all, you're a more powerful leader. And so I appeal to them, find common ground with your adversary. Start looking for what you got in common. And let's start here. You're all wearing the same clothes. You're in a place you don't want to be. You want to go home as soon as possible. You know, so we, we start with commonality. Three is walk a mile in your enemy's shoes before you judge them. And so you don't know what brought that brother here, but probably some of the same stuff that got you here got him here. And then it's practice active listening and pause before responding, teaching them how to really learn, study your, your opponent. Practice deliberate communication and use your influence for peace. Learn how to use your mind and your language like Dr. King did. He was eloquent and purposeful. And then the last two are when you're wrong, admit it and make it right. That's what real men do. You know, it's not weak to say you blew it and then make amends. And then lastly, treat your enemy with dignity and respect, especially when you disagree. Now you don't got to watch your back, you know, for the rest of your time in this prison. And it starts, we, we start working with them, teach them nonviolent principles, and it's incentive-based. And they know by the end of it, if they get this certificate of achievement, they can take that before a parole board, you know, give it to the, the warden. You could, I mean, use it when you get in the free world for jobs, whatever it is. And that has become powerful. Um, one brother even went from the parole board, called me and said, we have a guy that we're looking at. He says that he completed your program. And we're looking at, he's at life without, we want to see if we can give him life with. And I had to look him up and I said, oh, that's Chicago. He was great. He not only completed it, he helped build it. And that brother has hope now. Yes. And then I'll say this too. Once they start getting the good stuff, like really, you know, they're getting what they want. The Cobb County Jail, we ended up, the perk was, if you guys do good for 40 days, we're going to give you football on Sunday. You're going to get to watch the NFL because that had been taken away. Well, that motivated them. But then after they got it, we made sure that the whole block knew who to thank. Hey, Power Peace guys got this for you. And then when potential beefs would start, the Power Peace guys would go over and say, hey, y'all need to work this out because if y'all get our football taken away. So there's a reverse peer pressure that happens. Violence starts to decline. We've seen as much as 50 percent decline in violence in some prison. Well, and 
like uh, everything else, when the violence decreases, there's so many benefits that go along with that. The guards feel safer. There's less likely to have violent um, injuries among the um, inmates, which ultimately costs the taxpayers more money, uh, the families more grief and anxiety. And so there's just a wealth of benefits that go along with the decrease in violence. Um, and then you talk about the increase in some of the programs that the warden didn't feel safe safer bringing in that, you know, like 12-step programs, Bible studies, GED, life skills programs. I mean, that's what we want. We want a system that truly offers an ability for um, people who engage in criminal behavior to reform their ways, to come out better, not come out worse. But without the Power of Peace programs and other programs, they come out with new criminal skills because if that's all they have to share with each other and talk about how they did this or how they did that, well, if they're once they're released and they've re-entered, if they're not connected with the appropriate resources and support system out here in the community, they're going to fall back on so criminal true. ways just to just to survive and eventually end up back in the system. So, so true. Yeah. You no. Know, and they. I'm sorry. It's just beautiful. It's a it's a beautiful program. So. Well, I just want to compliment you on that. And it also, when these are guys that have reputations, okay? These are, because I'm asking for that. And I need yeah. guys that have real juice. And these are guys that not only don't do programs, but they trash on programs. It's not cool to do, not if you're, you know, hard. Right. And now all of a sudden, these guys are being rewarded and getting certificates and now getting some positive publicity in the prison, you know, and then it makes it cool for other guys to do programs. Now that's a big deal. If we can yes. start getting more guys into programs, we know recidivism rates drop fast if yes. you do that. And so there's so many benefits. There's, there's no lose for anybody. It's a win-win. And let's say that peace comes to the prison and there's still guys that are like trying to do dirt whatever their hustle is <laughs> business is better if there's less guys going to the hole. So I can't right. see that, but it's like, come on, everybody wins here. If, well, if and, you know, win. one of the things you touched on is very hard for people who don't work in the system. Like you said, with the least of these, the way that we do, whether it's the treatment system, the justice system, whatever system, when you're working with people who struggle and they find themselves in prison or in treatment or wherever, it's very hard for those individuals to understand that, for example, uh, when, you, when you say that they receive a certificate, a reward, it's probably the first positive reinforcement of self-worth these individuals have ever received and ever felt because historically what the data shows is that they're raised in such such a culture of abuse and violence that that's how that's just that's just their life they're not raised with some a parent or an aunt or a grandparent telling them how wonderful they are and that they can do anything with their life that they want to they're told the exact opposite so to receive that positive reinforcement from you is a big deal and and then they want to share it they want others to feel that they don't they don't realize that's what's happening but that's the way human nature is when when you get something good you want to share it it's so true 
Yeah, it's so true. And, and there's power and reward. I mean, it's so much more powerful than punishment. Yes. You know, and these guys, you know, their whole life, like you said, a lot of them, it's been just punishment after punishment. Finally, they're just like bumping. I'm not going to even try to do good anymore. And they believe the lie. But the other thing that, that's really cool is to get a certificate, you must write a paper. And if you have a problem writing, reading and writing, then you're going to get one of the brothers to help you out. But you can't get a certificate if you don't write a paper. And you've got to choose one of the people we've studied or a significant person in your life that you want to write a paper about. It's called your champion of peace. Oh, that's and awesome. When these brother and then uh, one is chosen from every table. OK, so we've got uh, seven tables of 12, typically, and maybe eight of 12, around 100. And so each table is going to choose a representative to read their paper. And we get dignitaries to come to the graduations, if at all possible. We want community leaders and, you know, whoever, law right. enforcement, you know, different elected officials, you, you know, that would come and see them. And that is such a big deal for them. We talked about is. that. Hey, at our graduation, you're going to get to show your brilliance. Don't you dare get up there and act a fool. And don't, don't you dare get up there and start, you know, here's what we want. <laughs> it's never happened because this is a big moment for them. And then every table has to, to uh, create some sort of performance. So it's like a skit, a rap, a song, a dance. And you see these guys laughing. And 40 days earlier, they just been glaring all mean because, you know, with their rivals. Yes. And the tables are filled with rivals, not like the Crip table and the Gangster Disciple table. That's and awesome. so, and I've had, you know, Chief Deputy over here at uh, the Cobb County Jail, um, he got up after the brothers presented their papers and he said, I'm going to be honest, when we first started this thing, I didn't think any of y'all could read and write. And I certainly didn't think you could complete the program. He's just real honest. He said, but after hearing you express yourselves, I'm blown away. I mean, uh, and he started, he came to tears. So he's, he's emotional in front of these brothers that are wearing the jumpsuits and tats all over their face because they have beauty inside that nobody ever gives them an opportunity. Well, and, you know, our culture has done a um, pretty bad service of dehumanizing people who struggle. And so, and, you know, I know that people in the system, in the prison system, the justice system, have to have a certain approach to be able to help their clients or, you know, the, the accused or the inmates or whatever. But a lot of people let themselves get so hard towards the, the inmates or to the clients that they don't see them as humans anymore with a real story, with a real heart, with sometimes real talent. Yeah. Because all you see is, okay, he committed a murder, he committed, but they don't really take the time to understand the why behind the behavior, not to justify it, but just to understand it and just treat people with compassion, with care, with understanding and respect. Um, yeah. Every every person deserves respect. Yeah, absolutely. Especially those who get the least of it. Yes. You know, yes. I mean, really, and you're so right. And, and tragically, a lot of people that are stuck in that lens of judgment are religious people. It's like the ones that are supposed to understand grace and we sing amazing grace. And is it really amazing for a lot of people? Or is it just, it's pretty cool grace 
for people that look like me and, and believe like me. It's like, you know. well, it's interesting. You said that even as a pastor who had, and I'm sure through your recovery, you worked the 12 steps, you made them, you know, you, you, you did the work you needed to do, yep. but for a pastor to feel so neglected by your brothers and sisters in the church that you had to go to a prison to find a safe place to preach. Um, I just think that that also speaks volumes because let's face it, there are many people who struggle that are in the church that feel like the church turns their back on them at the very time that they need them the most. Yeah. Where, oh, well, you know, if you're perfect, you can come in to this church, but don't be coming in here with any baggage. Don't come be coming in here with any problems. And I see that as uh, an issue as well, that if churches acted more like the an ICU for the broken, which is what we're supposed to be, um, I don't think that a lot of people would have a crisis of faith that I see in especially millennials, because yeah. I think you know, millennials have seen their parents or their aunts and uncles hurt by the church and they don't want that. They would rather not be engaged in that. And so I think, you know, that's another reason why those of us who really get grace and have given been given so much grace are willing to give so much grace, need to make sure that th those brothers and sisters of ours that maybe haven't experienced brokenness the way we have, or some of our family members have, um, they just m might need to be taught a few more skills on how, how to relate to us that, you know, <laughs> need grace on a daily basis, minute by minute. And we're in this fast food culture where we want everything quick. It bothers me. It bothers us if we're like, oh, what's wrong with my computer? Because the little thing's spinning and you literally <laughs> lost three seconds. Okay. We are like serious about what yes. we want. We want it fast. And these kids think about it. When I grew up, I didn't have information because I didn't watch the evening news and there was no, no way to get it. So when you're just with your, your group, all your information about important stuff comes from adults and parents. You can't yes. test it. I mean, if you went and bought a car at a used car dealer, you're just hoping you get an honest guy. Now you can get on the internet and learn it more than he does or she does about that. So yes. these kids are like, they don't need us is what they feel like. And they certainly don't believe. I mean, a lot of them are just, they've walked away. But I, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because the least of these have transformative power. Yes, it's really, it's not just give the guy a couple of bucks under the bridge. No, go buy some food and then take it to him and sit down and eat with him and find yes. out his name and where he comes from yes. and get to know him. And something wakes up inside of you as you're doing as God does, and it makes you come alive. And that's what they did for me is the more I loved on them, they loved on me. They did it in their own way. Yes. They taught me so many things. And so right now we're trying to find some local churches down here in Marietta that will um, accept and really take care of returning citizens. You know, we're, well, we're trying to help and guys get out. I and it's hard. A, it's hard to yes. get a church to do it. Yes. 
Well, and I've met with several pastors and explained that, you know, prison is the prisons and the jails and the court system is one of the most fertile fields for their ministries because people are scared. They're looking for support, emotional, financial, practical support, just somebody to sit with them, give them hope that it's, this darkness will soon fade. Um, but uh, I've actually started a nonprofit myself called Grace Works, and it's guiding restoration after court entanglement because um, what I saw on the bench and still exists today is that you serve your time, you're just released. You're released into a community. Well, as you know, Gwinnett County doesn't even have public transportation. So we have to rely on churches to donate Uber cards, um, housing, food. There's not really a consolidated, coordinated network to, you know, like a warehouse or a clearinghouse <clears throat> for families or people to go to to say, I need help from my brother. He's getting released from prison, but he hasn't, he doesn't have anywhere to go. Um, we, we sort of have a program that, that starts the process while they're in the jail, but then once they are out of jail, <clears throat> some people don't, you know, so, as you know, no job skills, no, no ID sometimes. They need help getting their record either restricted or some way um, uh, covered so that they can apply for a job. It's just, you know, and it's a very complicated maze of uh, avenues that they have to go through after being told on a daily basis, where are you going to go, what you're going to do, what you're going to eat, oh. and not, so they, you know, people that are in jail for a period of time, they actually lose the ability to make a decision without, um, you know, questioning themselves a lot. I call it the trauma fog. You people come out and they they're they're still in trauma because they they haven't been practicing their decision making and logical thinking skills for so long because they haven't had to make a decision. So then they come out. Um, where well, what what kind of job would you like to have? Um, uh, you know, and it's not that they don't know. It's just yeah. that they haven't had to make a decision in so long. Yeah. They, they're just so, you know, they're in, in, in trauma fog and it takes a while to re-enter and re-enter in a healthy way. And I, I just think that it's time for all of our communities and you know this, all of our communities to provide those resources through churches, through um, just people, mentors like you and me willing to walk alongside of the individuals or the families to guide them through the maze of complications. Absolutely. And I believe that almost in every kind of interaction or transaction, there's a what's in it for me. Hmm. It's kind of human nature. It's like, okay, cool. So the people out there, they're saying, I'm not given to those guys who did this and this and that. Are you crazy? I mean, you go help. And, and I'm like, that's fine. But here's the problem with that. <laughs> if nobody is helping those that are trying to change them, they're coming home to your community. And now you're the right. one that might be sitting there watching the news going, this is crazy. Why are we letting this happen? It's like, hello, you can be a part of the solution. You know, you can serve or you can give or you can do things because, you know, transformed criminals are 
the solution to crime and violence in America. Yes. If we transform them on the inside, we've got an army of guys coming out that can help fix up what they tore up. And I'm seeing that there's guys in there that if given an opportunity, they want to help. Yes. Really do. I mean, this is their chance. They respond quicker than people would believe. Okay. So before we move on to your new book, tell us how any of our listeners that may be interested in connecting with the Power of Peace Project or volunteering or getting involved in something like this, tell us tell us how they can do that. Yeah, you can um, easily just kind of uh, familiarize yourself with the work at uh, kitcummings.com or powerofpeaceproject.com or just okay. Google Power of Peace. Okay. And, um, we, but we're doing work in... Um, high schools, especially in underserved communities where gang, violence, crime, dropout, incarceration um, are the, the threats. Now, out, up here in East Cobb, you know, the threats are just as real. They're just different. It can be, you know, overdose, suicide, self-harm, teen right. dating violence, you know, accidental death from just acting a fool. So we're losing kids either way, but we're going to focus on, you know, down in the South part of Cobb County to start. And, um, and so we've got community partners and families in those areas that have been desperate for help. And so now we're going to go to those communities and say, hey, we need partners. We need sponsors. I mean, line up and help us. I think there will come a time and we're going to have to develop it a bit where people could actually boots on the ground. I mean, if you want to serve in a local high school and you want to help some kids and we're going to interrupt them and redirect them and hopefully shatter the pipeline from this schools to prisons, because that's what it is. That's what it is. Um, obviously, you know, anybody that's running a nonprofit will say, hey, we, we rely on the community to, you know, show some love. So again, people might say, well, I, I just can't help, you know, those guys on the inside that are doing, that's fine. Can you help some kids not go there? Everybody knows that's right. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And then if nothing else, familiarize yourself with the program. I mean, would love to, I guess we're getting ready to talk about the book, but you can yes, definitely yeah. educate yourself. Yes. Well, yeah. Tell us about the convict code. <laughs> it's called the new convict code. And uh, do you like the, the cover? It kind of grabs your eye, doesn't it? Yes. Because, you know, it's got kind of got that prison feel to it. Yes. But um, it's the culmination of 12 years of a front row seat, bird's eye view of the U.S. prison industrial complex. And not just in a couple of little prisons, but, you know, over a hundred places where they keep people, you know, that don't want to be there. Yeah. And, you know, in, in different parts of the country, because prisons are different. And even in, you know, prison in South Africa and Ukraine and seven of them in Honduras and a lot of work in Tijuana, Mexico, <laughs> hottest city on the planet right now with the cartel violence and right. a, pr a prison there. So these are practiced principles, you know, where cartel guys were laying it down while they're in this wild third world prison, you know, and, um, and so I've learned a lot and I've developed a lot through trial and error experiments. I mean, it's a fertile ground to try things, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, after doing it for that long, I felt like it's time for me to pull back the curtain and kind of show um, what's going on in there. You know, the, the, in many ways, it's a broken system that's built to fail. And it's a repeat customer business. Once it started becoming so lucrative 
and the private corporations started buying up prisons because it's big money. Um, that's when, well, we can go back a long way to talk about systemic, you know, problems. Right. Um, so this, you know, I reveal, but it's not a book where I talk about, you know, stats and graphs and it's not an academic study on the problem of, you know, mass incarceration. Those, I mean, the new Jim Crow. Okay. That is a earth, you know, ground shifting book when it comes to the prison complex. This one is one man's journey and say, let me tell you what I've seen, what I've experienced, and let me tell you what's worked. And so the, the thrust of the book is the problems we're having on the streets with our youth. The answer is, at least a very powerful answer is, transform some brothers on the inside that can mentor these kids on the outside. Because yeah, I believe that. Not, they're not listening to anybody else i mean a lot of these kids and so they become the unlikely heroes in the story you know which is their big motivation they need a big why to change and the kids become the you know their why and then the kids they feel like it's kind of hip-hop gangster cool it's, it's sexy you know, behind the wire but then they find these guys making you know uh becoming peacemakers and and that gets their attention and holds it but then the book is just kind of the process. So I talk about, you know, kind of I break it down. Here's how the thing works. And I throw in colorful stories from, you know, prison. Hopefully by the end of it, we see that there's a problem and there is hope. And I think people need to be aware of what's going on and honest about it and then give them hope that it can change. Well, um, a lot of people think that if somebody commits a violent crime, <clears throat> just send them to jail. Well, you've touched on a couple of things. Number one, uh, it's a business. The, the prison system, the justice system, it's been monetized. It, it is totally about making money. Mm -hmm. Number two, eventually most people get out. Mm -hmm. And do you want them coming out better, smarter, more positive, or do you want to want them coming out meaner, ready to commit even worse crimes? That's the choice that a lot of people don't think through. They think, okay, well, they've gone to jail. Well, eventually a lot of these people get out and they get out a lot quicker than their seven to 10 year sentence. Sometimes comes becomes a three year sentence. So the more education that we can offer and <clears throat> Um, extend and these programs that we can create while they're inside and in, incarcerated inside where all they have to do is learn. We want them learning new skills, better skills and That's being right. positive. So I just applaud you for continuing to stay focused on the mission, say, you know, seeing, seeing, you know, that the, the solution is so clear to mm -hmm. those of us who understand the system. And so that's part of what I've tried to do is educate, build awareness of how the system works, build awareness of where the system is broken, and then try to build awareness of the lack of resources that we have to bridge the gap. Um, because that's what we have to do. Um, when we can bridge that gap, we can disrupt these generational cycles. And like you said, keep these 14, 15, 16 year olds from even thinking about committing some of these crimes so that they're not, you know, accused of, indicted of, 
convicted of and incarcerated for these felonies at a young, tender, impressionable age, where then they come out and they're, you know, really hardened criminals. And that's where the escalated violence really starts. So true. Because it's our families that are at risk for getting hurt. Yeah. We've got, um, I served on a um, House of Representatives study committee on youth gangs and violence prevention. And we went around the state, um, uh, State Representative Carl Gilliards, the chairman. And, but we had Tyrone Oliver, the DJ, DJJ commissioner, and we had Homeland Security. I mean, this really cool. And we just gathered information and had kind of press conferences and we learned so much. And then uh, we would, basically they'd come before uh, the committee and, and talk about what they needed because we were trying to really shape some legislation around this problem. And uh, there, I mean, the things that I, that I learned, we have 50,000 active gang members in Metro Atlanta that we know of. Right. <laughs> now, guess where the best breeding ground and recruitment opportunities are? Jails and prisons, man. Yes. You've got a motivated group of people to recruit. And then, so we're not only releasing, you know, people that have become better criminals, we're a generation of new gang members that are hitting the streets and we're flooding it. And they are now creeping out, you know, this into the suburbs because there's money up there. But a, that's a huge problem, the 50,000. But then if you break it down to a little microcosm, I'm working on a little youth gang accountability court you know, where kids get a second chance and all their charges go away if they can really complete this intensive program. And uh, one of the little schools, uh, alternative schools that we're kind of partnered with on that juvenile court, um, kind of like a youth gang accountability court, is this beautiful little alternative school over here in Marietta. So I've got six kids that this is their last stop. Okay, if they screw up here, they're out and they're not going, they can't get their degree and we know what happens then. And so in this little thing, you've got just dynamics. You got one kid that runs everything and scares everybody. He's got his little shadow, the kids that it's kind of like his guy. So that's two of the guys. One of the kids is used by the gangs. He's not cool enough for them to accept him, but they'll use him. And so he's there for that. He's scared to death of the other kid because there has been a credible threat. Then you got another guy that's from another set. He doesn't even come to school when that other kid's going to be there because they've got a serious beef and he's concerned about that. And then we got one kid in the middle who's being affected by all of them. Well, the one kid that was the really toxic influence, he was removed. And now all of a sudden his little partner wants help. The kid that was getting used, he wants help. You know, this guy now will come to school. And I, and I just thought, we don't even understand the peer pressure that goes on in this world. One kid can wreck a whole lot of other kids because they're scared or they want to be accepted or they just don't belong. And we just transform one. Now imagine if that kid earned the right to get back in the group and then he really caught a dream and he started changing, get some positive reinforcement. Right. Can you imagine what that would do to all the other kids? They would say so-and-so turned around that's how it works. Well, the ripple effect is real. And you're, you're either causing positive ripples in your world or you're causing negative ripples in your world. And um, you're so right, the, the power of one. You and I have talked about that several times. The power of one person 
that to impact everybody in their world and you know you're in a negative way or a positive way and getting these kids early teaching them the power of being positive the power of peace um it's just vital it's just really vital and so i applaud you i'm so i'm really excited and, and encouraged and um so uh anything else you'd like to tell us before we finish up well, as I say, <laughs> I like to say, God loves knuckleheads. Yes. And there is, you read your Bible. What you see is knucklehead people in big trouble. <laughs> God shows up. And, and so I want you to know that I'm the one that I feel like receives the most from this, from this ministry and this work. It's not, oh man, you know, I'm glad somebody's willing to do that. I'm like, no, you don't understand. It changed my life. And so I'm the happiest guy to be at the party, you know, because I'm yes. like, people ask, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing better than I deserve. I'm happy. And well, so it, it is so fulfilling. Um, even secular psychological studies talk about the benefits for yourself emotionally, mentally, physically, in all areas of your life when you serve others, when so you're helping others. Um, so, you know, you add in the power of um, our, our faith in that because, you know, um, especially as Christians, Jesus didn't stay in the temple. He was out in the streets, man. So he, he spent most of his ministry on the streets with the least of these. Totally. And that's what, yeah, you know, that, that, that's what we're called to do. So he grew why. up, he grew up as the least of these dirt yes. poor from a city that nothing good comes out of. And I think he, those were his people. Yes. And I love it. I mean, <laughs> the last thing is he, he always talked to people like where they were at to fishermen. He told fishing stories to farmers. He told farming stories. One time he's, <laughs> he's got this crowd and he goes, all right, let's say you're going to rob a house. Don't you go in and tie up the dude first and then you can go take whatever you want. And you just see a bunch of bad guys out there going, yeah, that's pretty much how you do it. And then he related to them and brought a spiritual component. Jesus wasn't afraid at least of these. He loved them. And then people that didn't treat him right, that got his anger. Yes. Well, we should, we should I appreciate your work. I applaud your work. Um, I'm going to make sure that I include all of your contact information in all the posts and comments and things like that. But tell our listeners one more time how they can get to you. Kitcummings.com, powerofpeaceproject.com, and then the new convict code. Okay. So we're taking the old busted gangster code and we're changing it so it's a code that they learn to live by that doesn't make them weaker, but helps them to live a life of their dreams. Well, that's fantastic. All right. Thanks for having me so much. I, well, I love what you do. Love you. Behind you all the way. Okay. Well, we'll um, keep in touch. I'll try to get a copy of this to you too. And um, then you can publicize it however you'd like to. But uh, uh, supporting you, praying for you, and applaud your work. And maybe we can bring all of um, the ministries that you are creating, duplicate that so that every school in the country that has youth that's struggling will have a formula to try to start uh, disrupting that cycle. Ooh, speak that. Yes, <laughs> that would be awesome. Yes. All, all right. right, well, have a wonderful day. You too, appreciate okay. it. Okay, right. bye. bye, -bye.